Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Last week we came to verse 13 after we looked at all that God had done for us in the first 12 verses. And and Peter says, therefore, here's how to live. Here's how how life is to change in light of the new birth. We're to live sober-minded, clear-headed, with an eternal perspective. We're to live like obedient children, obeying God our Father. We're to live as if we're, we're foreigners, And along the way, there's a passage in there that talks about living a holy life. I said we might come back to it, and that's exactly what we're going to do this week. I'm going to look at this concept of holiness. I'm going to look at what it isn't and what it is. As we're going to see, there's a lot of questions and some misunderstanding, some confusion around this idea of being holy. Being holy can sound kind of a, kind of stained glass and, and otherworldly for, for many Jesus followers. It's, it's something that we're glad it's there, but we're going to leave it for the other person. You know, it's kind of like the platinum package. It's kind of like the luxury upgrade and, and the premium level for those that are super committed to Jesus. We want to find out today that that's not true. We hear terms like, like holy rollers, which can seem strange to us. We may experience people with a holier-than-thou attitude, which frankly looks more like the Pharisees for whom Jesus saved his harshest words than it looks like Jesus himself. Some of our ideas of holy is, is people who are, who are boring, who are, who are soft-spoken, with no particular drive, very reflective. They're the people who spend an awful lot of time praying and, and reading the Bible and doing whatever it is that holy people do. The problem is the concept of holy has been hijacked in everyday English and in our understanding. And so I want us to reread the passage from last week that talks about holiness. It's just a couple verses. And then I want to dive deeper to see what the Bible actually teaches about what it means to be holy. Let's go. Verse 13. Therefore, there's that important therefore. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled and set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, He's quoting here from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, and it's, it's one of a couple of verses in Leviticus where God had said this to the children of Israel, and it is carried over to those of us today that are, that are in the family of God. Now let me give you a definition of holiness that we're going to work with today. We're going to try and define it, then I'm going to take out the tractor and, and just try to clear the land of all the strange ideas that are out there, and then we'll kind of build and and look at what true holiness is. Because sometimes you have to blast and you have to move things before you can build. 
That's what we're going to do. So let's start with the definition. When he says, be holy because I am holy, the word holy simply means this. It's in your life notes. It's going to be up here on the screen as well. Holy people and holy things belong to God. Holy people and holy things belong to God. That's what it means to be holy. They are set apart to something or for someone in this case. They are different. If you are holy in the, in the biblical sense of the word, and you were a person, when God says holy unto me, or you were a thing in the temple that was wholly devoted to God, it simply meant that you belonged to God. You were His. You were for a special purpose. And as that word was used broader and, and underneath that idea of belonging to God is the idea that you were set apart, that you're different. It's what we talk, he talks about there in, in chapter 2 that I read at the beginning of the service. So that means biblically, if you've stepped over the line and faithed Jesus, you've been forgiven of your sins, you've been adopted into his family, and he started to change you from the inside out, you are holy. You are already holy. You are already set apart to God. And the call of Scripture is for us to live like what we have already become, not to from scratch try to be something that we're not. And that's a very important distinction to get when you're looking at what the biblical concept of holiness is. We're to live like what we've already become. You might want to write that down. I didn't put it in your life notes. We're to live like what we have already become. It's not that we become holy through our work and through our efforts and through, through our actions. We're holy because we belong to God. We have been set apart. We just don't always live and act like we belong to God. We don't always live and act like we have been set apart. Now look at Leviticus 20, verse 26 with me here. It says, You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Exodus 19.6, he says, Although the whole earth is mine, God owns everything. All the peoples of the earth are his. He says, You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Then in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, if you use the common cultural definition that, that we see in our holiness, this could be a very scary verse. And, and if we misunderstand what holiness is, this is definitely a scary verse. So, so let's look at this. It says, make every effort to live in peace with whom? With everyone, with all men, and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If you're not holy, you're not going to see God, it says. Now, if we use our popular definitions of holiness, we're in deep trouble, aren't we? If holiness means some of the, the extremes, some of the weirdness, some of the bizarre things, the concept that people have in our culture, because the Bible's clear that no one will see God apart from being holy. Let me try and help you understand this. The Bible also says that we will not see God unless we are born again. We all have a physical birth. And we all have a point when we, when, if we're a Christian, if we're a Jesus follower, we have a point of spiritual birth. But here's the fact. The moment that you have that spiritual birth, guess what? I've been set apart. I've been made holy. I belong to God. Consider this. In the New Testament, there's a series of, of letters, epistles, if you will, written by the Apostle Paul. And one of the distinctive things about those letters is that they're, they're written to some pretty messed up churches. Paul planted many of these churches and he had to write back. Sometimes he went back 
But he, he wrote back to these churches just trying to straighten things out there whenever he heard of errors or either in, either in what they were doing or what they were teaching. And that became part of our Bible in many cases. And so he wrote to the people in a town called Colossae with a book which became Colossians, correcting them because some weird New Age things were being taught in Colossae. There's another church that, that's probably the most famous messed up church that, that Paul wrote to, the church at Corinth. And, and even to the Corinthians who were so messed up, they were, they were accepting shameless lifestyles. They thought they were showing, they thought they, oh, we're just tolerant people. So they were winking at the fact that some guy was shacked up with his stepmother. He was living with and having a sexual relationship with his, with his dad's second wife. And they thought, oh, we're just open-minded. We're just, we're just full of love. They were suing one another. They were having, you'll never believe this, they were having church potlucks and they didn't want to wait till everybody got there. I could never imagine that happening. <laughs> Others were getting wasted. They were drinking too much of the wine before the other people got there. They were arguing at Corinth over who baptized them. Well, Peter baptized me. Well, Paul baptized me. Well, Paul, you know, they were arguing as if it mattered who baptized them. But here's the catch. Here's how Paul starts out his letter to the church at Corinth. He says, to the saints at Corinth, to the holy ones. They're all screwed up, but yet he addresses them as holy ones. Why? Because they were set apart. They belonged to God. No matter how they were acting, they still belonged to him. Now, I want to take this one step deeper and, and drive this home, because if I don't, here's what happens. We hear a message like this and we, we kind of remember it and weeks later because of the bogus teachings that we may have had or the bogus things that we may have believed over, over time or definitions of holiness, we go right back to where we always were. So I want to drive this home. I want to show you how, the, how this word was hijacked in regard to something called the Sabbath. And I don't want to show you according to what. I want to show you according to what Scripture teaches here and what Jesus taught in the book of Genesis, it talks about God working for the first six days of creation and then resting on the seventh, which became known as the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. He blessed it. He set it aside. He made it holy. And he later, in the law of God, which we'll see in just a couple minutes, he gave us the Ten Commandments. One of the ten was to keep the Sabbath holy. So over time, people did then what we do now, Guys, have you ever had this happen? You know, you say you're going to leave at a certain time and your wife wants to back it up another 15 minutes? No? Only me? Okay. People did then what people do now. And the whole concept of holiness kept expanding. They kept adding layers around it, layers and layers of fencing around it. And they came up with the idea finally to where by the time Jesus came on the scene to, to keep the Sabbath meant that you practically couldn't do anything. There were all these rules about keeping the Sabbath. When God said, keep the Sabbath holy, do not work on it, they wanted to know, well, what, what constitutes work? And they came up with these extra biblical, outside the Bible definitions of work so that by the time of Jesus, it was just arduous for the people. You can only walk so far. You can't do any kind of work. You, you can heat up food, but you can't prepare new food. And among these rules was this idea that you could not heal on the Sabbath. And that's the primary area where Jesus and his arch enemies, the Pharisees, clashed. Jesus would tick them off because he would heal people on the Sabbath. And they kept saying, you're not keeping the Sabbath holy. You can't do that. And I believe Jesus did this intentionally. I think he was poking at them 
trying to get through to them, trying to teach them some truth. Every single person that Jesus healed that's recorded in the Scripture, none of them has a life-threatening thing. There's, there's nothing there where Jesus had to, had to heal them or else they were going to die, but He could always resurrect them too if He wanted to as well. He could have waited till sundown and, and could have healed them then. He could have avoided getting into it with the Pharisees. But I believe intentionally He did this to show them that they totally misunderstood the Sabbath. He healed people that came to him on that day, and he did so in public. He didn't try to do it in a corner. He didn't pull them into a closet and say, here, let's do this here so the Pharisees don't see and get upset. Now, I want you to see the verses that I've just referred to with your own eyes, and we're going to see how the word holy has been hijacked and how everything changes if we go back to its original definition. In Genesis chapter 2, it says, By the seventh day God had finished the work He had been doing, so on the seventh day He rested from all His work, and God what? He blessed. He blessed. He didn't curse. He blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it He rested from all the work of creating that He had done. Now let's take the definition that I gave you for holy and let's put, and let's put that in there where it says Holy. Because again, we've got these misconceptions that when we see that word holy, it causes us to think these, these weird things. So let's see what it says. On the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing. So on the seventh day, He rested from all His work. And God blessed the seventh day and He made it set apart. He made it different. Because on that day, He rested from the work of creating. It suddenly changes there, doesn't it? Now let's look at Exodus where you have the law of God given, the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8-11. through 11, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your maidservant or your manservant, nor your animals nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it set apart, by keeping it different. It's almost like these guys, they figured, well, we have to improve upon what God gave us. God's pretty clear there. I, I think that's pretty clear. Do you? And then what they did is they, they, they found ways around it. They made up these rules and added it, and then they would say, well, you, you couldn't travel more than so far from your house on the Sabbath. They called it a Sabbath day journey. But what they would do, I kid you not, this is what the, what the Jews of Jesus' day would do, is they would go out and they would place a picnic lunch, a picnic basket, so to say, like, you know, three quarters of a mile away from their house. And if you had that, that established in their law, that established a domicile. So you could put that out there and then that could, and they play these games with the Sabbath. It's kind of interesting. Orthodox Jews to this day cannot turn on a light switch on the Sabbath because turning on a light switch constitutes work. God is, is, is actually trying to set apart the Sabbath. He's trying to do a good thing. He's basically saying, God's saying, I'm giving you a holiday every week. I'm giving you a day off every week. And you need to remember that this was a day and age of, of manual labor. There, there weren't a lot of white, what we call white-collar jobs, if you will. And in fact, it was primarily an agrarian or agricultural society, a farming society. And you had to work your tail off not to get ahead, but just to, just to survive. And God said, you know what? As my people belonging to me, I'm going to give you a special day. While all the other nations are working seven days a week, I'm going to give you a special day. Even during harvest, 
I'm going to give it to you as a day in which you don't go to work, but you simply rest and you enjoy life and you enjoy me. It's a gift. It's a blessing for you. And later on in other parts of Scripture, he tells him, he says, if you'll keep this Sabbath, don't worry that you'll fall behind because I will make you so productive in the, in the other six days of the week that you will have far more than those who work all seven days. But as I said, the religious leaders of old, they took that word holy, instead of making it set apart, instead of making it different, they made it boring, they made it arduous, as if we had six days to enjoy to ourselves, but we have to pay this tax one day, one day a week. It's a, it's a cursed day. The interesting thing about legalistic rules is that legalism is always based in Scripture, but you can't find it in Scripture. Now, in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus said, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was intended to help people, not burden them. It was supposed to be a day set apart for worship, for rest, for renewal. He said it was to be a, uh, like a vacation day. It was a day of rest. It was a day of blessing. And, and, and they had turned it into a day of restriction. And that's just one example of how this concept of holiness got hijacked. So we've tried to define it. Now I want to get off the tractor. I want to move a few boulders so that we can build the real deal, look at real holiness. And in order to do that first, though, you'll see in your life notes, I've got a, I've got a heading called fake holiness. I want to talk to you a little bit about the ancient and modern day concepts of false holiness that are most common. I've got four of them there for you. Things that you don't want to pursue, you don't want to be impressed by or fooled by thinking that they mean holy. First of all, we do not want to become modern day Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious Rottweilers of Jesus's day. They had the best of intentions they started out wanting to, to be all that God wanted them to be. Now, now is that a good thing? Yes, it, it's a good thing. So, so they dug into Scripture and, and they knew the Bible better than anybody else. Now, is that a good thing? Yes, that's a good thing. And they, they try to be absolutely 100% obedient. Is that good? Yes, that's good. And so they, in case they, just in case they missed something, started adding some extra rules to it. Now, is that a good thing? No. Because they kind of made mistakes there. They decided that they would be God's spokesman. They decided they, that they would be God's defenders as if God needed them to defend him. And the next thing you know, Jesus, Messiah shows up, God in the flesh, and instead of welcoming him, instead of recognizing him, they became his enemies. They became the ones that led the charge to crucify him. Here's how modern-day Pharisees and ancient Pharisees define holiness. They define it as radical separation and radical self-denial. If you fall into the Pharisee trap, you think that God is totally pleased when you live in a, in a holy huddle, unstained by touching or, or being around anything that's, that's evil or sinful. And you think that God is, is pleased when you're miserable because you're denying yourself things. Radical separation is usually driven by fear of contamination. That if I have these other people, these, these ungodly people around me, if I, you know, I might catch the sin disease. Well, let me give you, let me give you a hint. We're all already infected by the sin disease. And the only antidote for the sin disease is Jesus. So we're all infected by the sin disease. And where it's totally missing the boat is that, that God has set us those of us that are Christ followers, He set us apart and He's filled us with His Holy Spirit and we're the ones that are supposed to be contagious. 
we're not running from everybody else. We should be running to everybody else because we're supposed to be spreading God's holiness. We're supposed to be expanding his kingdom, not hiding behind walls that we built so that nothing can hurt us, nothing can touch us, nothing can infect us. And there's a very real sense in, in some Christian circles of being driven by fear. And so we create these holy huddles and we only buy things that are advertised uh, in the Christian yellow pages. You know, our kids only hang around with Christian friends and they only go to Christian school. And we have a fear that, that we must keep them from ever knowing about any or experiencing anything touching the evil outside of this world, in this world. Well, let me tell you something. The church ain't perfect. Christian schools aren't perfect. There, there's a major Christian university that is, that is suffering deeply right now. You know, I'm not, I don't like calling out names, but you'd recognize the name of the founder of, of this and his son. They aren't perfect. So that stuff, you know, and, and, I know, and I know kids that have gone to this university. Jeremiah Johnston gave a testimony last year when he was here for our, um, our Bible conference. He went to this university and left. So don't think that just because it's a holy huddle or just because it's got the, the name Christian in it or someone advertises in the Christian yellow pages that it's, it's holy, it's righteous. And so these people, you know, we get to where we, we have our kids or we try, to, we try to separate ourselves or them and we get in this bubble and, and we think we can protect them and they'll never get exposed. Well, well what happens when kids grow up in a bubble and are never, never exposed? What happens? When they do come in contact with it, they die. They die. And I can tell you time after time of, of, of people that I've known, I've seen this happen where someone, someone does that. They, they, they keep their child from from knowing the world, and then when they have to go and interact with the world, they crash and burn. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has the people upset with him because he showed up at this party, and this party was thrown by a guy named Matthew. You know, Matthew, that guy. By the way, this Matthew guy, he later wrote a gospel. So Matthew's throwing this wild party and they're upset with Jesus for going to it because there's a bunch of sinners and all kinds of people. Those people are there. And Jesus says, man, you don't get it. He says, I've come not for the righteous. I've come for sinners. People who are healthy don't need a doctor. People who are sick need a doctor. And what he's basically saying, though, he's also, whether they realize it or not, he's chewing them out. He's saying, you folks are so sick that you don't realize it. These people understand who they are. They understand they're sinners. They're willing to listen to me. And the self-righteous people couldn't because they couldn't see their sickness through their self-righteousness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul refers to a letter that he had actually written to the church at Corinth before what we have as 1 Corinthians. And they had misunderstood him in that previous letter. And he writes in this letter, he says, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And they took that and they went off sideways with it. Not at all. He's explaining. He says, not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. With such men, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. They were misunderstanding who they were not supposed to associate with. 
And Paul had told him what he had told him. He said, if someone, if you have a brother or sister in the church and, and they don't follow your admonition, if you come to them and say, hey, you know, there's this grievous sin, then you don't associate with them. But they had taken it to mean just don't be around anybody. He, he says, you know, I didn't mean people who don't know God. If you live like that, you're going to have to pull away from the entire world. I meant the self-proclaimed Christian. I meant the guy that's got the fish on the back of his, on the back of his chariot. And he lives like that and he doesn't respond then you don't associate with him. Now, this idea of self-denial, some folks think if you, if you want to be a full-on disciple for Jesus, that if you're given a choice between the easy road and the hard road, you must always choose the hard road. Well, you know, the Bible doesn't say that God is somehow pleased when I choose suffering. He does say that He's pleased when I accept the suffering that He allows into my life. He's not pleased when I go out and look for persecution. He's pleased when I weather persecution that He's allowed into my life. Our Heavenly Father is not pleased just because we're miserable. He doesn't take joy in our misery. That's not holiness. That's being a masochist. Another passage in, in Colossians chapter, chapter 2, beginning at verse 20. It says, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on what? On human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, they're spiritually worthless. And Jesus pr pretty much said the same thing in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 1 through 7 when he spoke again to the religious leaders of the day. And he said, why do you replace my, my law with your man-made traditions? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, we do need a little sidebar here, okay? If you're walking with Jesus as I know most of you are, if you've been walking with Jesus, my bet is that for most of us, there are sometimes times in our lives for extra biblical discipline that the Lord places on our heart. The Lord may tell, may, you may feel the Lord wants you to fast for a certain period of time or whatever, where he tells us, don't taste, don't touch, don't do this, because this is my calling for you. The Holy Spirit will take the word of God and, and he will birth that from inside out as a conviction. Follow that conviction, but don't put it on anybody else. See, it's not legalistic to have a personal conviction, the Spirit of God birthed in your heart for you. It is legalistic to take those rules and put them on everybody else. At the end of the day, those kinds of rules might help you, but they're not for the masses. They're not for your loved ones. They're not for everybody else. They have no power of restraining sin. Modern Pharisees, it's a false holiness to think that he loves it when you're separate and you're in a little holy bubble or loves it when you're denying yourself unless he told you to do it. The second one here, modern day zealots. Now the zealots were the people in, in Jesus' day who rebelled against the Roman Empire. Though they maybe gave in on the outside, they were the ones that never gave in on the inside. They were often involved in what we would call today guerrilla warfare. They refused to submit to Roman authority. 
Now, the thing about them is they, they lived in constant anger in a constant battle. And so I would call the, the, today the modern-day zealot is like the angry activist. We sometimes, think that it, it, we sometimes think it's holy to be ticked off and fighting a battle in a very angry way against whatever the crisis du jour or the sin du jour is. These are the folks who are mad, furious, and feel the need to help God out, to, to go after evil. They're self-appointed spiritual shock troops, and they're out to destroy God's enemy. They're at war with the world. And here's the problem with it. What's one of the first verses that, that we teach our children? John 3.16, For God so loved the what? He so loved the world. Why? So that He could save it, so He could send His only begotten Son to save it. And if He loved the world enough to come and save it, why do we or why do these people hate it so much? Romans chapter 5, he, it says that He died for us while we were His enemies. When we wanted nothing to do with Him, He died for us. He stepped forward and said, I'm going to pay the price for their sins so they can be forgiven, so they can be adopted as full-on sons and daughters of God. So if He died for us and He loved us when we were His enemies, how dare we think that, that we're doing His work when we hate His modern-day enemies, when we're furious and we're angry at the crisis du jour? Our Lord is not in the business of wiping out His enemies. There will, there will be a day of judgment. But we're told that the Lord delays it because he doesn't, he doesn't will that any perish, but He wants all to come to repentance. You see, Jesus isn't in the, in, the, uh, in the business of wiping out His enemies. He's in the business of winning His enemies. And if we are truly holy, set apart, belonging to Him, we're not angry at our world. We're not constantly frustrated at it. We're not attacking it. We're doing everything we can to lovingly be persuasive, to draw that world to him. Second Timothy chapter two tells us how the Lord's servant must respond to the world and to the people around us, even those that are held captive to carrying out the will of the enemy. Here's what he says. It says, and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind. There's that word again. To whom? To those you agree with? To those that believe the same thing you do? No, to everyone able to teach not resentful, those who oppose him he must, how? Gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. The modern-day zealots, the angry activist who is not gentle, who is quarrelsome, who is resentful, is not walking with God. They're not walking the way that God wants us to walk. And I know that these words, is, these words some people may have problems with. This is what God says, not what Walt says. Instead of seeing people as in need of being won over, the modern-day zealot sees them as in need of being wiped out. He's angry. He's argumentative. She's resentful. These are words and behavior. I don't know about you, but I've, I've seen a lot of it in recent months and recent weeks. I see it on Facebook pages and on social media of friends who are believers. The sense of being resentful of, towards what's happening and thinking we're being holy and standing up for God, while in reality, we're doing the exact opposite of what God wants us to do. Jesus did not show up resentful at a world that was going to reject Him. He showed up to win them over, to pay whatever price was necessary 
to make them sons and daughters of God. And folks, that is our calling as well. It is a fake holiness to live in separation, self-denial, and angry activism. Not that activism is bad. Don't hear me saying that. There's gentle, persuasive, kind-to-everyone activism as opposed to resentful, angry activism. Number three, modern-day monks. Now, I think we all know what a monk is. They're the guys who, who went and lived in a cave or whatever. And, and it's the idea that you're really holy if you're a reflective loner. And I'll be honest with you, as an off-the-chart introvert, this really appeals to me. I don't mind being with myself. And I don't mind sitting around reading. My, my grandmother used to say, if you want to punish Walt, put him in a room, but without a book. You can't let him have a book, because he'll just enjoy it if he's got a book. Now, this is so in line with some things that I've already said that I don't think it takes as much explanation as those earlier ones did, but I want to point out that God is not impressed if you're a reflective loner, because we're not called to be loners. You may have heard me say it before, the Christian life is meant to be lived within the context of community. And just as we're not to worry about in the sense of separation, oh, I could get contaminated, we're not to be impressed by pulling away from our world the way that the monks did. I read this at the beginning before our service, but I'm going to repeat it here. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Live such good lives, what? Among. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. How can you... How can they see your good works if you're not among them, if you're by yourself living in the desert? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that we're the salt of the earth. He tells us that we're the light of the world. He says, you don't put a light under a bushel basket where it can't be seen. Now, there may be times that God does say, come apart, a retreat or something like that or whatever. Then that's okay if God leads you to do that for that time. Another place is the Great Commission. How can we, how can we do the Great Commission if we're, if we're a reflective loner? We're supposed to be marching toward the world, not retracting ourselves from the world. And then the last of these four is what I would call modern-day Samsons. Modern-day Samsons. Remember Samson, the big, strong guy, and you know, it got kind of messed over by Delilah? Well, during a period in Israel's history, God raised up judges. These were like rulers. They weren't kings, but they were the leaders of Israel during this time. And for 20 years, for 20 years, Samson successfully led the people of Israel. We, we all know the stories that we saw on the flannel boards when we were kids. Realize Samson, that isn't all that was to Samson's life. Samson led the Jewish people for 20 years. Now, that's pretty good if God raises you up as a judge and to, to, to lead your people, Right? Well, Samson was anything but holy by conventional wisdom. He was driven by hormones, and as a result, he messed up morally. And what God did is he took this completely crooked stick, and for 20 years, he drew a straight line with it. But here's what, what, what I want you to see. Whenever you see a straight line being drawn, understand it's the artist. It's not the pencil. It's not the stick. And here's where this plays into holiness. Modern-day Samsons have power without godliness. When you see spiritual power, don't presume that you have seen holiness. Giftedness is not holiness. Giftedness is just giftedness. We may see somebody who through music can bring tears to your eyes and we think, oh, God is so there. 
We may see how God uses someone to build a significant ministry and we go, oh, that's, that's holy. Or, or we may see a communicator with a gift of communication. We think, oh, God's really flowing through that person. I want to make sure you understand something about holiness. Holiness is shown by being set apart to God and living like it. It's not necessarily shown by giftedness. You can be incredibly gifted and at the same time, incredibly carnal. We fall into this trap. Sometimes we think that the, that the more holy we are, if we're in ministry, that the bigger ministry we're going to get. There, there's a lot of people that I would argue that are, are much more walking closer to God and exhibiting a, a, a life that, uh, after God's own heart of small ministries all over this world, people that we've never heard about that we're not going to see in the, in the headlines or on, the, or on the, uh, the TBN stations or whatever those stations are. Holiness is simply belonging to God. I've got some passages on this written down in your life notes. Uh, the, the Judges 15 passage talks about uh, Samson and Delilah. Numbers 22, you have Balaam's ass giving a prophecy, a word from the Lord. You know, his donkey talks. You know, a holy don well, well, don wow, talking donkey. Let's take it on the road. Let's have a sideshow. The interesting thing is that, that Balaam talks back to the donkey and they have a conversation. That's a, that's a whole other story. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it tells us when the Antichrist comes, He's going to actually be able to do miraculous things. And some people are going to be deceived because we think power and we think being used by God, we think miraculous things, that must indicate that it's holy. And they're going to be deceived when it's not. So what is genuine holiness? Well, as I've already said, it's simply lining with everything that we looked at last weekend. And we're going to review it here. It's being dedicated. It's being set apart to God. And let me say that I'm going to say some of the same things we've already gone over last week and earlier, but I want to do it in a quick and different way now that we've blasted out all this weird stuff away so we can see what the Bible says about holiness. It's something that all of us can follow. And thankfully so, because without holiness, it's impossible to see God. So here's, here's, how, here's how to live like what we are. It's on the back of your life notes there. The first thing, the essential thing, it starts with spiritual birth. It starts with spiritual birth. We can never be holy on our own. We don't become holy enough to say, okay, God, I'm, I'm holy enough now. I'm, I'm fixed up enough. Here I am. You know, I, I've run across people as, as, I've, as I've ministered to unchurched people over the years, and there's, there's this conception people think, well, I've got to somehow get good enough for God to accept me. I've got to clean up my life in order for, for, for God to, to come to God. And, and I tell them, that's totally backwards. Come as you are, but for God's sake, don't stay as you are. Fishing analogy is very apt here. Do you, do you clean the fish before you catch it? No. You catch the fish, then you clean it. Spiritual birth is that decision to trust Jesus and that action of following Him as best as you can. And when you do that, you're forgiven. You're adopted into his family and the process of change from inside out begins because no one can see God in their own works. None of us are righteous enough to see God. We see God only when we're born again, when we have that spiritual birth, that rebirth. I've got a series of verses there in your life notes about this. And then when that happens, God begins the restoration. We've all heard those stories about somebody who goes to a garage sale and, and for a few bucks they, they pick up a painting or they pick up something incredibly valuable without really realizing it. 
Or you hear about some painting that's been damaged by smoke or, or fire or something and gets a tear in it. And, and what happens is a specialist comes in and, and does the restoration and they, they fix the painting and they bring this artwork back to what it, what it originally was. Well, prior to this, you, know, you might be looking and saying, well, that's not even worth 20 bucks. But, but here's what I want you to understand. The restoration people aren't turning it into something of value. They're just returning it to what it already was. Just couldn't be seen anymore. Do you see the difference? When you stepped over that line, you were instantly all that God wanted you to be. But it's a long restoration process of getting rid of the smoke and the ash and the little tear and, and putting it back together. But it's not that you're becoming something you're not. It's that he's getting rid of all the stuff that hides what you are, restoring you to what you were created for and to what you are positionally and have been from the moment that you faced Jesus. Now to do that, I want us to look at three questions here and how, to, how we live that out. They don't need a lot of estimation. I've got a verse or two there for each one of them. But once you've stepped over that line and started your journey, here's some simple questions to, to ask to decide on a day-to-day on a -day basis. The first question is, how will this impact eternity? As you're trying to live holy, set apart to God, ask the question, how will this impact eternity? We talked last week about being sober-minded, focused on, on the grace that will come to us. Right here in 1 Peter the verses before holiness, we read that. How life would change, though, if each major decision, even the smaller ones that we made, if we made those decisions in light of eternity, if we said, how will this impact eternity? When considering a job, most of us will say, well, how is this going to impact my career? We don't oftentimes ask, you know, how are these, how are these uh, duties, how are these hours going to impact my family? How is it going to impact my spiritual walk? How is it going to impact my family's spiritual walk? How is it going to impact my time with my kids, with, with, with my grandkids, if, if we've got family? I want to tell you, only the things of eternity last. And if you truly want to live a life set apart and different, you're going to have to make your decisions in light of being different, in light of being who you've become, which is somebody with an eternity in front of you. Life for the believer isn't over when we take our last breath here on this earth. It's just beginning. Where I live, how I use my money, how I use my time, where I put my energy, how honest I am in particular situations, all of these have two answers if I ask, how does it impact the now and how does it impact eternity? The second thing to ask is, how does this impact God's reputation? If I belong to God, it's probably a good thing if people think well of God instead of poorly of God because of me. I'm very slow to put that fish on the back of my truck or my car. You know, there's some people, you know, I see on the roads and maybe they should be slow too. If I belong to God, it's probably a good thing that people would think well of God because of me. Colossians chapter 3 says everything we do, everything we say should be done in His name, representing Him. And I want to tell you, there's a whole lot of things that change when I ask this question, how does it represent God? How, do, how am I living my life? How do, how do I make God look good? Or how am I making God look bad? The third question, number four in your life notes, is this. What does God say to do in this situation? We make God's will so hard sometimes because we try to figure out what His will is in areas where He hasn't spoken. And you know what? I believe you will always be able to figure out God's will in the areas where He hasn't spoken if you're doing His will in the places 
in the ways that he has spoken. You know, you're worried about who you should marry? Well, go back and look at how you should date. You're worried about where you should live? Well, be honest and, you know, don't, don't lie on your loan applications and other things when you're applying for your mortgage and things like that. Follow the, follow the truth. Follow the things that God has already told you to do. In the midst of every situation, make your starting point. Has he spoken on how I'm supposed to respond here? Because I'm different, because I belong to him, because I'm an obedient child, I should not live in ignorance, but I should live in light that he's given me. You see, holiness is not out of reach. Holiness is not something that we're going to spend our lifetime trying to, trying to achieve. It's not weird. It's not something that we kind of grit your teeth and do. If we're followers of Jesus... It's the most natural thing in the world. It's becoming what we have already been made. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at sv. MIN.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day!